This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer and welcome to a very special Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast broadcasting live from Gulf Food Manufacturing spanning 20 halls. This is the place for the food industry to come together. And we brought together some incredible chefs who have scored Michelin stars, who have started their own supper clubs. We also had an exclusive chat with Deepak Chopra, our very own producer, Poonam, talking to him, expect a mind-blowing conversation, and it was your health clinic. Danielle Hudson, physiotherapist, was on hand to help. So many companies and countries exhibiting here and also a top roster of chefs here at Top Table doing demonstrations, having panel discussions. We've stolen away a couple of our favourites between now and five. Joining us live here is Jesse Blake, born and bred in New Zealand. He has well and truly shaken up Dubai's dining scene as a chef and consultant. You had a demonstration earlier. Jesse, it smelt amazing. What did you make? Hey, um, so I made a... Sweet onion tart with local cheese and white truffle. So there's a few different uh, components there, uh, which we kind of modernise the dish. Some mega umami going on. It smells. So when you say local cheese, how local are we talking? UAE made. UAE made cheese, yes. What kind? um, So we do like it was like a Saudi-style cheese. Uh, I can't quite pronounce the name Don't myself. Worry. Um, <laughs> I try, I couldn't it's either. super creamy, super salty, which worked well with the sweet onions. It looks absolutely yeah. incredible. Um, how, how is it going at Gulf Food? What, are, you, are you getting the chance to do any chatting? Or are you still just grilling away on the top table? No, I've actually uh, done a bit of a walk around and, and bumped into a lot of people that I knew. I was quite surprised. It's, I think people, that it's really important, I think, you know, definitely. coming out the back of COVID, to be able to reconnect with people, to have, I mean, a lot of business being done here, of course, but I think most importantly for, for chefs and, you know, people like me to be having conversations and think, you know, what's going on? Um, yeah, people that I haven't seen in a few years or I didn't know who were still around and just funnily enough bumping into them, uh, looking at grills and smokers and wood fire grills and things like that. So, so it's been great. when you were up on the stage, the, the notice on the big screen, not only did that have the amazing tart that you were making, but also talked about you having a green star from Michelin. Um, let's talk about that recognition because your wife, fellow chef Kate, getting up on that stage completely speechless was one of the highlights of the award ceremony for me. Did you really have no idea? Uh, no, I was in, uh, I believe, I was in India at the time and she was on the awards and I, I really didn't know what was going on and then I got a message over WhatsApp saying, hey, we've won uh, Green Star. <laughs> I was like, That's great. For anyone who's not familiar with the Green Star, this is a recognition of sustainability. You've got the only one in the UAE. Who knows what's going to happen in terms of the Abu Dhabi awards coming in, in January. But what do we know that Michelin is looking for in order to give that praise? What's their criteria, Jesse? I think you just need to be doing right uh, by you know implementing as many sustainable um, methods and sustainable practices as possible. Um, I'm not too sure to what level that is, but um, for example, the, where I was previously at Lowe, um, we're doing what they were doing and they still are doing everything imaginable to to be more sustainable and and they're not doing that for the award they're doing that just to be a better restaurant and i think i think that's something we kind of forget that that's a choice of a chef and a restaurant to kind of lean into that and say this is what we can do this is what we can control can you explain some of the practices that you would love to see every chef and every kitchen start to incorporate it and you know as you say great to get an award but really the big prize is the planet 
Yes. Um, I think the main one for me is eliminating all plastics. That, that is a huge one in terms of, you know, your takeaway packaging must be biodegradable. Um, even things that are like wax-lined containers are not suitable. So just being really, really cautious of where you're getting all your materials from, speaking with your suppliers about not delivering your vegetables in plastic bags, you know, having your own storage vessels for, for your ingredients so that you don't have to use them. Um, yeah, those are some of the main ones. All your cling films, all your um, vacuum bags need to be biodegradable. All of these need to be replaced. And this isn't an easy decision. Like you, You're making your life harder every single day and you're having to have conversations and educate your suppliers, but you're the ones that are leading them and saying, you know what, if you want to continue doing business with us, it's going to be on these terms. We actually spoke to a chef from a restaurant called Silo in London and when they started, they were like, we want to have a kitchen with no bin. And I was like... Yeah, that's How's that going to work? But they, 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 they're saying, they said they've got one small bin, which is if the supplier isn't able to comply 100%, and they've got a compost bin, of course, but that's it. It's incredible. Yes, they have a great um, sustainable zero-waste model, which um, is very challenging for, for most restaurants to follow, but definitely uh, I think it's the way forward. And it doesn't have to be everything. No one's coming around as like the planet police being like, well, you've done this. But to be able to say we're doing our best, under the circumstances, we're doing better than we were last year. And Correct. This is what we're hoping to do for the future. Yes. Joining us now with Chef Jess Blake. He's a consultant and a chef um, here. He's got his top table jacket on. To be honest, you look grateful just to have a chance of a sit down, sir. <laughs> it's been a crazy day. Up next, we're talking about foodie philosophies, plans for the future, and what is Chef Jesse obsessive about in the kitchen? That's next. You're listening to Afternoons with Helen Farmer, live at Gulf Food Manufacturing. Thousands of exhibitors and unlimited business opportunities all under one roof. Chef Justin Blake is with us, born and bred in New Zealand. He is well and truly shaken up Dubai's dining scene, uh, working as a chef and a consultant, working internationally too. You're just creating a dish that seemed to have some kind of Mediterranean, but also some Middle Eastern. What's your kind of foodie philosophy, if you were to sum it up, Jesse? My foodie philosophy... little bit difficult to describe I mean look whenever I'm creating something I like to visually see my ingredients mm-hmm. um, obviously the style I have is, is, is relatively refined and contemporary but uh, I usually like to take a traditional idea and then flip it on its head and give it uh, you know a little bit of a clever slash quirky um, Makeover. You're definitely one of Dubai's more kind of cerebral chefs, I would say, in terms of the thought that goes on behind, whether it's the storytelling or passion for the produce as well. Now, your wife Kate's also a chef. What does this mean for home? What kind of meals are, are happening at the household? And you need to be completely honest, how much delivery is happening and crossing your, your threshold? Look, we at times can be very bad with delivery um, but uh, most recently we, re- we eat uh, and cook at home a lot um, very basic very healthy you know some some grilled salmon with salad or some chicken with salad or just some vegetarian based dishes so uh, we're eating quite light always we like to be healthy we like to look after ourselves as well that's why i wanted to ask you in terms of the demands of being a chef you know it's it's, it's no secret that whether you are training and working your way up through the ranks in the kitchen and doing those 16, 18 hour days sometimes mm. to consulting, traveling internationally as you are now, you know, running your own restaurants. How do you look after yourself aside from food? Like, do you even have time to exercise and work out? I, I make time. Do you? Yeah, really, really do. So I try to work out at least once a week. Oh, sorry, once a day. Once a day? Uh, yeah, once a day, sometimes twice a day. Um, you know, I wake up very early in the morning, train in the morning, 
eat well afterwards and then try and get a, a session in, in the afternoon so um, yeah it's always very very fast paced lifestyle trying to fit it in, in amongst these, these crazy hours but um, I always like to be on the ball a lot of chefs yeah. I've spoken to especially out of the UK are into martial arts Jiu-Jitsu seems to be really popular in the chef community is that the case here? yes oh, not with me but I do know a lot of people who are getting into martial arts why the, Why that connection why, why the the attraction? Uh, I think there's been a huge push with it at, at the moment particularly in, in the UAE with, with obviously th- place, uh, competitions like the UFC mm-hmm. coming over and um, yeah I think definitely a lot of people getting into the, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu seems to be very popular it's in, uh, I find that because it tends to be quite polarizing with chefs. You've got chefs who, and I'm not going to name names, seem to be getting bigger and bigger waistline-wise through their career, and then those who do tend to be much more health-focused and looking internationally at what's happening in terms of trends for themselves and wellness. What's in your future, do you think? How, well, what are you scheming? What are you working on right now? I know you've, you mentioned India earlier. Where's next? Um, look, I'm just going to continue on doing some consulting work. Um, there's, you know, it's, I've been kept quite busy at the moment with a lot of different consultancies so at the moment I'm, I'm relatively happy um, doing that and you know if, if the opportunity comes where I, I get a full-time job with a, with a restaurant where I can cook the food that I want to cook um, then obviously we'll, we'll can discuss that uh, in the future. What do you want to cook? Look I, I just want to be able to have the freedom to express my creativity however I want mm-hmm. um, obviously you know it all has to work uh, in terms of business structure and things like this but um, you know a small place nothing too large you know I can I can still be on the tools I'm not uh, a desk chef behind the computer I'm, I'm in the kitchen cooking with the team so something small something easily manageable and obviously very popular I think obviously obviously very popular which it would be with you at the helm but I, I think you raise an interesting point there about desk chefs because it's one of the kind of sad ironies of success in the chef community that the higher up you get, the further away you get from the kitchen. Correct. Yeah, I, I do not see myself in future being stuck behind a desk and stuck behind a computer. I am definitely very much involved, very practical. I need to work with my hands, so that is a must. Your tools are the knives, not an Excel spreadsheet. Of course, yes. <laughs> and in terms of trends you're noticing, I mean, conversations you're having today at Gulf Food Manufacturing and what you're seeing internationally, you mentioned there, you know, a smaller place. What are we noticing in terms of cuisines, covers, um, even costs? Where do you think that we could be seeing more um, of in the future? Look, I think uh, with the introduction of all these um, various prestigious awards like the Michelin Guide and Gold Malau and um, the 50 World's Best coming through uh, the UAE in the Middle East. I think there's going to be a, a lot of push for these kind of high-end restaurants to to put their name on that list and um, yeah, hopefully that uh, entails a lot more sustainable restaurants coming through as well. I definitely have seen a lot of that from, from a few key restaurants so I'm hoping to see a lot more you know, Michelin Green Stars uh, next year when the awards come out again. Watch this space. Chef Jesse, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. Chef Jesse Blake, um, you can find him on Instagram. Um, and an absolute pleasure as ever to be talking some of the top trends and what's happening around the UAE. You're listening to Afternoons with Helen Farmer, live at Gulf Food Manufacturing. Thousands of exhibitors and unlimited business opportunities all under one roof. Joining us now from Boca, Chef Matthias. How are you, Chef? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I was watching your demonstration earlier. What were you making? So um, I made two dishes, actually. Uh, so, yeah, like Boca and our philosophy and everything is like very hardcore on sustainability, like really try to push that agenda. 
And so basically the dishes that I made was, uh, the first one was, we called yesterday's bread. So in hospitality, you know, in hotels, restaurants, uh, there's a lot of wastage mm -hmm. and bread is one of them. And because if you want to really pursue quality, you have to make it every day. Sometimes you make a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes you make extra and then there's leftovers. Uh, so what are you going to do with that? So, of course, a lot of people already make like croutons and all that. Uh, what we do as well, we soak it in water, uh, yeast, sugar, two days. And then uh, we strain everything out, we boil that water down, and then you have homemade marmite. What? Yeah. No way. Exactly, yeah, like that. Same I consistency, that kind of lovely... Yeah, even tastier. If you have good quality bread, it's even tastier than what you buy in a supermarket. No. <laughs> Is that something you could do at home? Yeah, absolutely. What else are you doing at Boca that you feel like could translate to a home cook, a home kitchen? Oh, um, yeah, from pickling, fermenting, 100%. That's, uh, that's uh, easy to go. Get your fermentation guidebooks and all that. Good for the gut as well. Yeah, good for the gut, exactly. Uh, get your kombucha on and all that. It's amazing. Don't overconsume that. <laughs> Apparently, it's not that healthy in overconsumption. Uh, everything is not healthy in overconsumption, I heard. That's true. <laughs> For anyone that hasn't been to Boca, yeah. how do you explain the space? What what greets you as, as you walk in? So, um, yeah, so in the, the IFC Financial Center. And so it's already like, uh, yeah, we do our business lunches. We have the after work crowd and all that. So it's very business oriented. Uh, that's basically what we mostly rely on. But then also we have like a la carte menus, you know. Uh, for people from outside the UFC that come for dinner and all that and that's basically when the creativity happens. So apart from the marmite, what's on the menu at the minute? What's, what's got people excited to eat and what's got you excited to cook? Uh, so yeah, so uh, the second dish that I did, uh, oh, sorry, the first dish, let me get back to that. So that was the bread crust tartar. So I made basically a, uh, yeah, I just made a very fine crumble of like the waste bread. Uh, sourdough bread was like two days old, this one. And then I mix it with like balsamic, tomato powder, because we use a lot of tomatoes and we have a lot of dehydrators. You know, because dehydrators are your best friend in zero waste. Like we have five of them in the kitchen, <laughs> and you just like you keep on like sticking everything in yeah, there. Yeah, stick everything in there, <laughs> and it, we always use it. So you dehydrate a tomato, and then you grind yeah, it, it down, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So it becomes a, a presumably very, very flavorful. Yeah, and then uh, so we mix that, and then with like olive oil, balsamic, uh, salt, and all that. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, you get like an amazing tartar. It's like almost like beef tartar. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah, and then what, uh, because we also use a lot of milk in, uh, in restaurants as well, and mainly fresh milk. Ooh. And fresh milk expires like after five days, something like that. And we all know, we always smell like the packet at home, like, mm -hmm. no, it's still okay. Like, it's good for another seven days. But of course, we work with regulations and all that. It's uh, not allowed. Uh, so what I did as well, like, I make ricotta. And we called ricotta made from revived milk. Uh, revived, revived meaning basically we extended the shelf life so that we can keep for another like one week. Now, not to ask a too insensitive question, I mean, I know you're passionate about sustainability, but this must be affecting the bottom line in a positive way as well. Uh, it depends how you do it because uh, it's, it's a very fine line. It's, a, it's where you draw the line. It depends on your business as a mm -hmm. restaurant mm -hmm. or your private life, or what you want to do, right? Um, not to pull any triggers here but for example if you like buy a Tesla you know uh, Tesla amazing electricity it's very sustainable for your wallet you know no petrol anymore but if there's not enough materials on the planet you know to get everyone around the world to drive an electric car and is that mining of these materials mm -hmm. damaging the planet more than petrol mm -hmm. cars ever will it's not sustainable for environment so we always work with four pillars which is quality uh, environment finance and the community the people 
So for, uh, to give you a good example, um, we use a lot of, yeah, a lot of like local produce and all that, um, a lot of vegetables, but if the vegetable, some vegetable here is not that tasty as the one from Lebanon, for example, and like, let's say, like, let's give an example, like a watermelon, I have no idea uh, on top of my head, but let's say it takes 50 liters to grow here, the watermelon of water, and it takes only 30 liters, for example, to grow in Lebanon. And the taste is better. And the taste is better, and the transport is actually like a very minimum uh, issue on the carbon footprint pillar uh, mm. by surprise. Uh, yeah, which one is that more sustainable, you know? So you need to it's think a lot, a lot to unpack, and you guys yeah. are very transparent about your carbon footprint Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. And in terms of the diners that are coming to you, as you say, you've got great central location. The food is fantastic. Are people coming to you? And I know it's going to be a range of, of attitudes and, and perspectives yeah. for that sustainability piece, or is that just a nice bonus? No, they don't care. They really don't care. I, I, like uh, I tell you that, for, uh, like straight away, uh, the people don't care, um, and I understand that. Uh, I learned this the hard way as well because uh, I went in back in August. I went to Denmark. I got a scholarship for the Mad Academy, and this is an action. Thank you. And this, uh, it was like a one-week, very intensive program, and it started by Rene Redzepi from Noma. The uh, was one of the best restaurants in the world. It still is up there, and um, so it has all focused on sustainability. And I went for dinner with my uh, with my fiance, and then we went to a restaurant called Amas. And Amas is one of the restaurants that is like really pushing the boundaries pretty of hardcore systems. really hardcore like one of the dishes I remember was fishbone noodles it was just yeah yeah they use everything it was mind blowing and uh, but my surprise uh, when I was sitting there for dinner and then they present every single dish because it was a tasting menu and all these dishes they were like oh this is fishbone noodles with this and this and this this is our uh, fermented potato bread blah 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 there was no like explanation and I was mm -hmm. a little bit shocked by that I was like like huh like, listen, I want to I wanna know. Yeah, you know? give me the backstory. Give me backstory. But um, then the next day, by surprise, uh, we, went, we had actually a class from the chef. So then he was explaining, like, listen, 80% they don't care what you're doing. Um, but the thing is, like, he's pushing really that boundary for us chefs also to follow footsteps Absolutely. of sustainability, that Absolutely. spirit. And think, think about it. Like, let's say there's a burger place that you really want to go to and they're like, very hardcore sustainability. I mean, in the end, you go out for a nice dinner or whatever. You want to go out for a nice burger. I mean, it's nice that they do sustainability, but you're not really going for that because you still want to enjoy and all that. And it's an issue we actually don't want to have. Mm -hmm. I, but I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. And whether that conversation is front and center or, as you say, it's, it's, on, it's on the side. Exactly. It's got to come from you guys as chefs. It's yes. got to come from the supplies yeah. and the conversations that you guys are having. And I think it does need, I think a certain responsibility does that, can come from the diner as well to, to know about sourcing, to know about what's happening yeah. behind the scenes. 100%. And you guys are absolutely leading the way in Dubai. So I just want to say a big public congratulations and, and thank you. Um, for anyone that's going to come and visit you over the next few days, What's your favorite dish on the menu at Boca right now, Chef? I'd say the octopus. The octopus is amazing. That's like, a st like I'll never take that off the menu. The yesterday's bread as well. Uh, try that, please. Um, yeah, just anything off the a la carte menu. Forget about the tapas menu. You come for a tapas menu after work, you know, uh, with, your, uh, with your crowd uh, from the office. But if go I, for the mains. Yeah, yeah, go for the mains, absolutely. Chef, yeah, yeah. thank you so, so much. As Pleasure. we said, you can find Boca at DIFC. Talking supper clubs, Nicaraguan cuisine and more with Gabrielle from Girl and the Goose. This is an underground dining in the heart of Dubai, really elevating some of the traditional recipes that Gabrielle grew up with. 
bringing together people, telling stories and really having a night to remember. Gabrielle, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hola, Helen. Thank you so much for having me here. You've already brought a big smile to my face. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you're finding Gulf Food Manufacturing so far. Well, so far it has been a little bit first overwhelming, but super exciting, amazing. Um, For me, it has been a very important to be here, not only because I represent Nicaragua, but also because I get a little bit of the exposure of what the um, the chefs that are thriving in the industry are doing out there, you know, and also taking inspiration because this is something that we or I personally need in order to keep growing. I think, I think that networking thing is actually really crucial. I mean, you, for many chefs in, 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 in cities all over the world, there's like a chef community, you know, you have people who will do a shift in a restaurant and then they go out and socialize and have this like late night you know kind of community and you work on your own you have your own supper club you're not attached to a restaurant so this is an amazing opportunity as you say to go and have conversations with people from around the city and beyond and also kind of check out some of the produce as well now for anyone that's not familiar with girl and the goose this is a supper club that is obviously very close to your heart and very close to your roots for anyone who hasn't had the dragon cuisine before how do you describe it gabrielle well Nicaraguan food is a little bit similar to Mexican, I would say, and Colombia, if you want to think about it. But what I've been trying to do for the last four years is to bring a little bit of modern touch to our cuisine. And the food in Latin America is very carb-condensed, everything is deep-fried. So I've been working in ways of having that little twist of an international touch to every dish. And of course, always using premium products, you know, because I think that's important to use premium products and to preserve the integrity of the ingredients. Tell us about some of the dishes you had when you were growing up with your grandmother. Take us back in time, Gabrielle. My Lord, for me, my favorite was nakatamal, or in, if, you, if you go to El Salvador or Mexico, they call it like tamal. And it's basically, uh, a small dish made of dough, corn dough, because our food is predominantly uh, come from corn. And you can either have it from chicken or from pork. I prefer the one that comes in chicken and has a little bit of potato and a little bit of fries. And you can see a little bit of the influence of the Spaniards, also the influence of the Asian cuisine with the rice and uh, the indigenous or the pre-Columbian one with the corn, the maize. So that would be my favorite dish. Oh my goodness, you're making me seriously hungry. So you've interpreted some of the dishes, as you said, that you grew up with for your supper club. What was the first one like? Were you nervous before welcoming people and serving food? Because that idea of giving people food, communicating through food, it's it's a brave, bold thing to do. How did it feel? For me, food is emotions. You know, I, I don't I don't believe that I'm someone that cooks a dinner or a dish. I'm someone that wants to transmit emotions and I want to take you somewhere. And when I started uh, three years and a half ago, it was very, um, I was very nervous. It was very challenging because I didn't know if people were gonna be interested in actually eating Nicaraguan food because, I mean, let's be honest, how many Nicaraguans do you know? One, think, it's you. Exactly. <laughs> and then knowing if people would be comfortable of eating at someone else's house, you know? So I was really nervous, but so excited about this journey. And, and yeah. You're one of the longest standing, most successful supper clubs in town. And I, I do you. think there's a bit of an art, not only to the, to the food, but as I alluded to earlier, that storytelling around it and bringing people together. How do you ensure that you've got a great combination of people around that table? 
I think, I don't want to say the, I think the community um, self-select itself. Whoever is a foodie and whoever appreciates the food, they will come and follow um, the supper club scene or the underground dining. And they will obviously tell others, and this is how we grow. And it's, it's about support. It's the community that actually supports you. And how, how often are you running the supper clubs now, Gabrielle? How often? At the moment, I'm doing it twice a week. and because wow. I'm, I'm basically working more on the menus, perfecting the recipes, and working more on collaborations. So I want to be able to balance uh, both. I think that's a lot. And how often, um, sorry, how far in advance do people need to book to make sure they're getting a spot at your table? I publish this just once a month. So uh, it's uh, in a, a monthly basic and it is booked a month in advance, let's put it this way. So the next dates uh, will be released somewhere about the 16th of November for the December month. Something I've always meant to ask you, either on air or off air, is tell me about the name, Gil and the Goose. What's it all about? So all of you listening out there, brace yourself because it's a little bit long. No, I'm going to try my best to be short. So back home, we're superstitious, you know, and um, and we believe in so many things. And one of the things that we believe is that when we have a dream, we have to write it down and then find out what it means. So I had this dream where a goose was chasing me to bite me. And I woke up in a in distress so I didn't know what it was so I went and I wrote down the dream and then I went to the biggest library on earth Google Mm -hmm. and I asked what does the goose mean and I found three things that really resonates with me the first one is that the goose is associated with long migratory journeys and this is how I see myself I already migrate 14,000 kilometers away from Nicaragua all the way to Dubai the second one is a is a totem for discipline and perseverance you know I'm, I'm being a chef has been a passion and has been my childhood dream because life took me through other ways. And in that journey, I had other jobs and I have other things. So it taught me discipline and to persevere in every dish, you know. And also taught me that before it gets easy, it would be very, very difficult. And the last one uh, has to do with the ancient Egypt because the pharaohs, they used to believe that a Nile goose will lay an egg every morning and from that it will hatch the sun and for them it represented hope and I just love that hope. Oh, I've just got goosebumps, Gabrielle, <laughs> that's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for being with us. For anyone that does want to follow you on Instagram, have a little sneak peek at some of the dishes that are served up at your twice weekly supper cups and of course sign up to come along and explore that cuisine. What's the best way of getting in touch with you? Uh, the best way will be either through the Instagram account that is girl and the goose but uh, with dots in between girl that Yep. And it was in between and all just through the website is called girlandthegoose.com just go under the reservations drop me your email and your number and I'm absolutely going to get back to you as soon as possible well thank you for spending some time with us today and thank you for, for bringing a taste of your home to our sandy shores here in Dubai because I think absolutely as you say it's been incredibly inspiring for an awful lot of people and it's been a real experience you know exploring the taste buds opening your mind and trying cuisine from the Caragua thank you so much Gabrielle really really appreciate it. Great to have you with us this afternoon. It's 11 minutes past two and it is your free live clinic. We're talking physiotherapy, Dubai fitness challenge is well and truly underway. So what can we do to stop injuries and indeed when can the physiotherapist be invaluable? 
Joining us live on the line is Danielle Hudson, physiotherapist, musculoskeletal physiotherapy, sports injuries, shoulders and more at the Physio Centre, ready to take your questions and mine. And you can be anonymous if you prefer on 4001. You can use that ARN Play app and you've got that WhatsApp to 04871 Danielle, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very I'm well, thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're it's snacks a go go down here at Dubai World Trade Center. Um, so a great atmosphere, some really big names, and lots of foodie chat. But we've had lots of questions for you, Danielle. I think this is a really interesting one for an awful lot of people because we need your help on a bit of clarity in terms of where and why a physiotherapist can help. Are you able to outline briefly the difference? I think an awful lot of people, myself included, get confused about osteopath, chiropractor, physiotherapist. What is your role when it comes to helping people with their bodies? So physios, um, probably a little bit of everything, to be honest. We're quite holistic. So we don't purely just do um, hands-on treatment. We do a lot of rehabilitation, um, long-term rehab. So, for example, if you've had surgery on your shoulder or knee, um, you would probably benefit from seeing a physio for quite an extended period of time to get your um, function back, your mobility back, and get you back to the sport that you enjoy. Um, some osteos and chiros tend to do um, more manual therapy and not as much educational stuff or long-term management. So that's the difference between, between the three. But we all work well together, so some people benefit from you know, a mix of all three treatments. Um, we never discourage people from using other health professionals, but a physio role is predominantly to come in, assess you, give you a diagnosis of what's going on, um, refer on if needed for investigations. Um, majority of the time, you know, it's just a case of overuse or bad posture or not moving enough. And we can obviously educate you on how, how to improve those things and make some lifestyle changes. Danielle, we're really lucky here in the UAE that an awful lot of people will get referrals from their family doctor or an orthopaedic for physio and that can come under health insurance. I mean, my poor mum had a knee replacement a few weeks ago and bless her, she's Googling exercises on the NHS website trying to get herself, you know, on her her feet. But we are really fortunate here to be able to avail of some of those services. I'm curious, what's coming into clinic right now? Are you noticing any trends? Are people, you know, perhaps feeling Um, some, uh, some aches and pains as a result of their 30 by 30 yet? Yeah, so with device-based safety, we generally um, get quite busy, <laughs> um, just purely because obviously people have either decided to do um, exercise for the first time or they've increased their exercise tolerances with doing it every day. And some people are a little bit misguided on, you know, it is device-based we are encouraging you to move on a daily basis but some people generally go a little bit hard too quickly and end up with some little um, sort of repetitive injuries, which we can, which we can help with. Um, but yeah, things coming in generally, a lot of knee pain, anterior knee pain, which can come on with um, increase in running, um, shoulder problems if people have started doing a lot more sort of hip classes, yoga classes, um, and then the, the general stuff, lower back pain um, and a couple of Achilles niggles again if people have been doing a lot more impact classes. I think that's a really important distinction to be honest we you know we think about you know the importance of getting moving it's not about doing 30 minutes of total beast mode and shocking your body after doing a year of nothing it can be as simple as 
you know, a fast walk along the beach track or swimming in the sea or a yoga class. And then maybe by the end, you can have a go at beast mode when your body's perhaps Absolutely. a bit, you know, a bit, a bit more used to it. So let's talk then about some of the, you mentioned there's some of the common reasons for injury. And it might be perhaps doing exercise without adequate supervision or, you know, incorrect technique, body shock, as we said, of, yeah. you know, not doing anything for a long time and then throwing yourself in at the deep end. But what about prevention? What are some of the things you recommend to people, whether they're exercising for the first time or after a long time or they are actually really active and just want to avoid an injury before an event so i think if, if you're new to exercise you just have to you know we have to learn to crawl before we can walk so starting off probably not with a lot of impact stuff so exactly what you just said there you know going for a walk along the beach um you know just general continuous movement cycling swimming and then you can start to build it up to the more impact-based exercises, whether that's in a, a hit class or doing a home exercise video at home. Um, to try and prevent injury, especially if you're new to exercise, obviously pacing is, is number one, exactly what I just said there. You know, ease yourself in gently. Um, we have to have rest days um, to allow the body to heal. So obviously during the Dubai 3030, a rest day could just be, you know, an active walk, um, a gentle swim, something like that, or a, a yoga class, Pilates class. Um, so pacing is important with regards to recovery. Um, we would recommend, you know, getting adequate sleep because there's a lot of evidence for sleep and that promoting healing. Um, and then things like, you know, having good footwear, don't go for a walk in your Havianas, you know, put a pair of trainers on. Um, have good technique when you're doing exercise. Um, often in classes, there's a, a drive to do as many repetitions and sets within a certain time, but, you know, your form needs to be good. So, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror, making sure that you, your technique is good or even asking the instructor, you know, I'm, I'm new to exercise. Can you, can you spot me? Am I doing this correctly? Um, for the more advanced sort of athletes, um, who are already exercising. The problems that we generally see in clinic is that their normal routine is still there, but then they're increasing their, um, their exercise tolerance, their endurance, their loading. So these types of athletes then get sort of overload injuries because they just too quickly increase their training log. So they just need to be mindful of maybe dropping down some of their training if they're going to compete in the Dubai 3030 um, and just sort of have it more consistent over the days rather than doing big heavy heavy loaded days with weights um, and then on the second day you know do some gentle cardio um, stretching mobility stuff and, but and listening generally to your body fine. as well yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, the, Danielle, we've got we've got so many questions come in for you. We are we are going to go to text line in just a few minutes. So if you do have any messages for uh, physiotherapist Danielle Hudson from the Physio Centre, do get in touch. Your chance to pick her brains. Um, we've had a message asking about when can you start postnatal physio after a C-section. Um, Drew's got shoulder pain um, and wants to find out a little bit more and foot pain as well from Bilal. So as I said, great opportunity great. to find out a little bit more about physiotherapy and how it could perhaps benefit you.
Physiotherapist Danielle Hudson is with us live answering my questions, but honestly, most importantly, yours. Um, Danielle, a question here from um, Annika saying, I had an elective C-section four weeks ago. Second baby, uh, daughter arrived live on two, four years ago. It's my first C-section experience. When could I start postnatal physio? I suffered from terrible SPD this pregnancy um, and wasn't able to move very much. Pelvis a complete mess, total agony, and my core strength is completely wrecked. Um, please help me feeling even less strong and physically very weak indeed what do you tend to recommend when it comes to that postnatal that fourth trimester okay well congratulations first of all absolutely um, well done on producing two humans <laughs> um, yeah so basically after a c-section um, the guidelines are roughly six weeks before you can start exercising um, I think in this case, it would probably be beneficial for her to see a women's health physio before she started exercising, just with her having some um, pain during this pregnancy, sort of pelvic girdle pain. That would probably need to be assessed um, by a physiotherapist before you could decide on what type of exercise she can do. Um, but gentle exercise to begin with, especially if you know pelvic floor is not working, um, we need to probably have like an, an internal examination to see what's going on there. Um, along with um, some basic Pilates stuff, which I'm guessing you've probably, she's probably done before, but some guidance on what exercises she can do. And then gentle stuff like, you know, walking, cycling, all that sort of stuff. If the scar is healed well, um, there's no harm in, you know, getting in the pool and doing a little bit of swimming, but probably avoid breaststroke just with the position of the hips. Um, but my advice would really probably be to see a women's health physio as an initial start, just to see what's going on with the scar and the healing and what level the pelvic floor is at. And they can guide her on, on where she can start. But Pilates would probably be the first, first line just to get that pelvic floor activating. Um, and then once she builds some confidence with that, then she can go off on her own and do, do some exercise. And it also depends, you know, what was she doing during the pregnancy? Because generally, if women have, you know, not been active in that last trimester, then, you know, we do lose a lot of muscle. Um, our ligaments are very lax. Um, so you need some guidance on how to get back into that. Great advice there. Um, as uh, Echoing Daniel's uh, sentiments there. And Nika, very uh, big congratulations. And I think it's great to be thinking about this early on because that was my big regret. I was like, oh, I'll get to that. And then, you know, hadn't shifted yeah. 24 kilos like four months down the line. So yeah. um, for, for that sense of connection with your body, for building that strength up again, and just the logistics of, you know, moving around with a toddler and a, and a baby. Um, but under supervision, a women specialist can be incredible. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I'm obviously a physio and I saw women's health physio after my children. And Me too. Yeah, they're, I, I, they're amazing and it's a very specialist field. Thank you for that. Um, Drew has been in touch saying, Hi both. I developed shoulder pain at the start of um, this year. I saw a doctor and a physio who told me I had a rotator cuff injury possible tear to the tendon i was given exercises to do and the doc prescribed naproxen i took one and felt really woozy so didn't carry with the medication i've since had an ultrasound which has shown inflammation of the bursa i'm continuing with the exercises i'm booked in for a cortisone injection however it will be about the use of ultrasound to target the area i just want to know could the pain ever go away with regular physio absolutely um my specialty is shoulders so you've asked the right physio <laughs> um 
Obviously, I don't know the age. Did he tell you the age? He, no, no age on Drew. Drew, let me know on 4001. It sounds okay. like an active man. Um, yeah, sounds like an active man. So, yeah, rotator cuff pathologies are very, very common. Um, majority, of it, majority of people experience this um, later on. So, sort of 40s upwards, we generally have problems with our shoulders. That's why I was asking how old he is. Um, physio can 100% help. Um, I would say it depends what physio he's had to make a, a decision on whether he's had appropriate physio. Um, myself, I would do a lot of um, manual therapy initially to get the rotator cuff activating, get rid of any stiffness in the shoulder, and then we would work on the exercises. Um, steroid injections are usually in you know, the last, last point of treatment, um, depending on the age of the patient and how long he's had it. Um, if you are going down the injection route, it is essential that he comes to physio after that because the injection will purely just work on pain, um, but it won't change the mechanics of the shoulder. So often shoulder problems are because the joint is such an unstable joint, and I tend to describe it as a lollipop of a saucer. Um, and if those muscles are not working in time, you know, like a clock, every muscle has to engage at the right time, then you develop an imbalance in that shoulder, and that is generally what impingements are. Um, so if he's had the correct physio and, you know, they've, they've gotten into that shoulder, got rid of any stiffness and given him a comprehensive program, then yes, an injection is indicated. But if he feels, you know, that he hasn't really exhausted those options, then I would suggest either coming to see myself or going to see somebody else um, for a second opinion just to see, right, well, have we done everything from a conservative point of view? before going down, you know, a steroid injection route. Absolutely, and also, as, as you alluded to there, to, you know, addressing root cause, not just uh, not just addressing Absolutely. the pain. Um, Danielle, the Dubai Fitness Challenge is underway. We've been talking about injury prevention, and a number of people are getting in touch about kind of ongoing problems. James says, I broke my wrist quite comprehensively nearly five years ago. I had surgery to have uh, plates and screws inserted. Did my physio religiously regain strength and movement? Discharged by physio, all tickety-boo. But it isn't. My wrist continues to cause me daily discomfort and annoyance. It clicks, a slight pain if I push it too far. I feel some strange goings on in my fingertips. Basically, it's never far from my mind. I'm only in my early 30s and would love to have to not worry about it. Is it too late for more physio? Great question, because I think a lot of people learn to live with discomfort, with pain, and just think, well, this is part of getting older, or this is the result of an injury, and this is how I feel now. Is it ever too late? It's never too late. I mean... We, we don't really want to have that opinion because I don't believe that you should have to put up with something, especially if you're only in your 30s. Um, it sounds like, obviously, it was quite a severe injury that he's had. Um, so it's being realistic with regards to the what load he can put through that wrist and, and the function that he has. Um, first line would probably be to just have a review with either the orthopedic surgeon who did the surgery, just would he saying he's getting some clicking um, and some, I think he said some pins and needles into his fingers. Um, we just need to clarify if there are cause as to why that is happening. Um, you can come and see a physio. Um, if you have a physio in Dubai, go and see that the one that you trust or you can come and see us here. Um, they can assess you. Pins and needles is more of a sign of sort of nervy type pain. 
Um, so we would need to just check the nerves that are going into the hand, whether it's, you know, is it getting stuck in where the wrist area is, or sometimes actually it can be coming from the neck as well. Um, so whether he's got any underlying neck pain at the minute, and is that causing it as opposed to the actual wrist injury that he had. Um, the clicking can be a sign, you know, if he's had a significant break, it's it's common to have clicking in a joint after something like that, especially if you've got metal work in there. Um, but at that age, you know, don't put up with it. Come and see a professional. Um, you might need some specific strength exercises. Hands are a funny one because people often don't strengthen their hands or wrists. You know, it's generally I need to strengthen my legs, my back, my shoulder. But actually, hand physio sort of gets left behind. But we require our hands to do a lot, especially if you're lifting weights in the gym and things like that. So he might just need some guidance on some specific exercises that he can do to strengthen it. But the clicking and the, the pins and needles, that needs to be looked at from a professional point of view to see if, if there's something else going on. Is it referring from the neck? Um, is there some instability in the wrist? James, it's not, it's not too late, James. It's not too late. Um, Danielle, for anyone that is taking part in the Dubai Fitness Challenge, that 30 by 30, at, at whatever standard um, or level of fitness, are there any stretches or exercises that you recommend everyone does, just as a matter of course on a daily basis, to keep them mobile, keep them healthy, keep them strong, that perhaps we could all be trying over the, over the next few days and indeed probably yeah. for the rest of our lives? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean... Today's lifestyle is very sedentary, you know, and especially in Dubai, you know, everyone sits the majority of the time. Um, it's not a very walking friendly city. So, you know, people are sitting in their cars. Um, we don't generally move a lot. We work long hours. So getting up in the morning and doing, you know, a quick five, 10 minutes flexibility routine is, is beneficial. Um, you know, simple things that people don't raise their hands above their head or their arms because we just work at computers. So, you know, doing some hands above head, moving your neck right to left, um, knee hugs, knees to chest in bed in the morning, um, some rotations, rotating your knees away from your spine. Just simple movements that we don't generally do on a day-to-day basis now because our lives are very sedentary. Um, majority of us have, you know, someone doing our laundry and um, we drive to work. We don't, you know, utilize a lot of public transport here. So I think, you know, general mobility is key. Walking lunges, doing um, squats when you're putting the dishes in the dishwasher, just basic movements mm-hmm. that keep us ticking over. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot on the 3030 website. Um, you know, there's a lot on YouTube, you know, you can go on and just Google 15 minutes flexibility for beginners, intermediate, advanced, and you'll get a lot of hits on that. Um, Daniel, thank, but yeah, thank you just, so much. Oh, it's really, really helpful. I want to squeeze in one last question. This is from Maz okay. saying, could, could a physio help with my six-year-old's balance problems? Is that something, I mean, I know obviously you'd need to have a look at, at a child and you specialise more in, in adults and, and shoulders, you mentioned earlier, but for those that do specialise in, in paediatrics, um, is, is there something that could be done with the help of physio and, of course, in conjunction with that, um, with that young, young person's doctor on the physio front? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, first of all, it's identifying the cause of the balance issue. So, you know, if it's because your six-year-old has weak ankles or um, is a little bit what we call hypermobile, then some um, physio can help, paediatric physio could help with that. 
Um, if the balance issues are due to other problems, so, um, you know, is there a, a, what we call a vestibular problem within the ear, um, that would need to be looked at by a paediatrician. So it's first clarifying what is causing the balance problems. Um, but if it is due to a musculoskeletal problem, then a paediatric physiotherapist could 100% help with that um, through a rehabilitation program on improving um, their, their gait, their walking, um, doing stuff on balance boards, making it fun, because obviously six-year-olds have got a very short tension span. Um, so doing a lot of balance work on balance boards, wobble boards, things like that would, would definitely help if the cause was due to a muscle or joint problem. And lastly, Danielle, if you could give kind of everyone one bit of advice to try something, do something, change something, and I'm not saying to keep them away from, from you and your clinic there at the physio centre, <laughs> but because I know you do some amazing work, but just for us all to be living our best lives, our healthiest lives, and our fittest lives, especially at this time of year when we are shining a real spotlight and that's part of Dubai Fitness Challenge, what would your one nugget be if you could wave a magic wand across the city of Dubai? A magic wand would be just to please move more. Um, I see so many people that do not move at all in their day. Um, and I just, it breaks my heart. I just get up, use the stairs, don't use the lift, you know, walk, walk and get a coffee, go that extra mile, just move generally. Walking is health. Um, it's good for the body, it's good for the mind. Um, and if you're going to do anything, just get up and go for a walk and have some new time. Um, and that's going to encourage you to move. And then hopefully after that, you can get into some fitness classes or go and play paddle tennis with your friends or anything. Just you have to move because without movement, we we just deteriorate. Yeah, it's a very quick way of feeling a lot older than we actually are. And yeah. uh, I think we forget yeah. that, you know, the ability to, to move and you know to exercise is an absolute privilege and not a punishment and thank you so so much Danielle. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We are so lucky in this part of the world to welcome some incredible minds, business brains, leadership, spiritual leaders and author Dr. Deepak Chopra is in town this week for the Sharjah Book Festival and our very own producer Poonam Verma was lucky enough to meet up with him for a chat. So I'm with somebody who needs no introduction whatsoever, Dr. Deepak Chopra. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you. I've been following you throughout your whole career and to be sitting in front of you is it's very bizarre for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know what I did? I, I found out over the past week that um, I was going to interview you, but it was on and off. There was It was 50-50. And then two days ago, they still weren't sure. So I created like a social media post where it said... Um, tune in, I'll be interviewing Deepak Chopra, to this, and I still didn't know if it was going to happen. But I had that picture and I just visualized it. And I had no feeling of if it didn't happen, I'd be sad or anything. And last night I got a call saying you're going to be interviewing him. So I feel like in a weird way, I visually manifested that. What I wanted to ask you is when it comes to manifestations throughout your life, do you use any tools, processes or methods to do that? Or are you somebody who says, universe, you give me what is best for my highest purpose here on earth and you just surrender to that? 
The actual answer is, uh, is that there's no such thing as a universe. There isn't? What we call the universe is a human perception and the interpretation of sensory experience in human consciousness for a very narrow bandwidth of perceptual activity. So for everybody listening who is asking, what is your definition of consciousness then? Consciousness is that in which all experience occurs, including the experience of the body, the experience of other bodies, the experience of thoughts, sensations, images, feelings. You see, I get it. I just wonder if everybody else gets it. I totally understand what you're saying. Now, I remember at university, um, one of the people I used to watch was your best friend, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Coming from a Sikh Punjabi family, I grew up in England, so we'd learn about Christianity and Sikhism, but I didn't really understand spirituality, and she put it on a platform where she introduced people like you, Gary Zukav, uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, um, Eckhart Tolle, and suddenly I was listening to all of you, and something resonated on a soul level, which a scripture or a religious book hadn't done before for me, and it's like my soul had recognized all the things that all of you were saying. And from that day onwards, fast forward 10, 20, 30 years, I've been through many nice and very horrible spiritual crises and epiphanies to become a metaphysics practitioner today. But I do know that um, I had a, an extreme breakdown due to grief, which led me to the next evolving side of my consciousness, or as they say, a spiritual awakening. Do you think as human beings, most of us have to go through a breakdown to have a breakthrough to evolve to the next level. A lot of people have spiritual epiphanies after a crisis. Mm. Some are born uh, in a way that they seem to already have access. Like a lot of to the gurus and the saints. Reality, yeah. yeah, like Guru Nanak. Yes, obviously, <laughs> very much so. When you look back, um, when you were talking about this on mainstream platform, um, and you look at where we are today in the level of talking about mindfulness, meditation, yoga, consciousness, do you think we've evolved? A lot more people are open to talk about this compared to maybe when 30, 40 years ago people were thinking, oh, what, what's this person talking about? Yeah, I think a lot of people right now are struggling to find uh, an identity that goes beyond uh, their body or mind. The spiritual experience itself is fundamentally the same in every religion. It's finding your identity as transcendent before beyond space and time. It's the emergence of platonic values like truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, Kindness. love, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the loss of the fear of death because your transcendent self is not subject to birth and death. So if you look at every religion, the experience is identical. The, the way it's described is cultural, depending on the time and the history of that period. But the experience of Guru Nanak and Jesus Christ yeah. or Muhammad or I would say every other great sage or luminary mm. is identical. You talked about death there um, and accepting that. And That's also a construct based on false identity. Yeah, and we are attached to whether our culture, religion, our body, our gender, our jobs, whatever that is. 
Um, as a doctor, you saw death every day. Yes, did every you, hour. Every hour. Did you come to Or accept it at an earlier age than most of us would at a later age? No, I was first exposed to death uh, when my grandfather died at the age of, uh, I was about six years of age. And mm. I struggled with the concept all my life, and including medical school, as a physician, working in the emergency room. Um, I was obviously obsessed with this idea of what dies and what is born. And where do they go? And what uh, do they go? And I, it took me a long time to realize that these were wrong, wrong questions based on false identity. If you say, I have a body, which one do you mean? <clears throat> you were a fertilized egg, then you were a zygote, then you were an embryo, then you were a baby, a toddler, a teenager, now this, all the way to so-called dusty death. So what we call the body is a concept. It's not a real thing. It's an activity. It's a verb. It's not a noun. On the radio show, one of the things that we seem to be dealing with on a regular basis is young people, as young as eight, nine years old, dealing with mental health issues. Yes. Now, I don't remember growing up around all my peers and the kids and teenagers ever having these issues. Do you think it's because when we were growing up, the things that we cared about were... Our community, it was a much smaller environment. We didn't know what was going on in social media. Maybe had three channels on the TV. So we didn't have to compare ourselves or compete with others. What do you think it is? We've sacrificed ourselves for our selfies. I love that. Now, that's the only reason why there's gone. People don't have a sense of belonging anymore because they think they are their selfie, not their self. You need that on a T-shirt. They've sacrificed themselves for a selfie. So you really think social media has played a part in this? I think right now social media is engaged in a competition for, for false identity. And so people are scared. And our children, unfortunately, you know, when I was growing up, there were celebrations, festivals, yeah. family, community, Uh, there was uh, a sense of belonging. Right now, I don't know what's happening, but you're right. Uh, you know, suicide is now the second most common cause of death among teens. Every 40 seconds, somebody in the world is dying from suicide. During the pandemic, our foundation started a program called NeverAlone.love. You can check it out, www.neveralone.love, and we create an artificial AI emotional chatbot. Right. And her name is PV, named after a recording artist who died from suicide, but PV also stands for Personalized Interaction with Intent. She has now intervened in about close to 6,000 suicidal ideations. So having 20 million text conversations simultaneously. Teens are more comfortable talking to a machine than to a person because they don't feel judged. Yeah. So now we are actually looking to expand her capacity in Arabic, in Hindi, in Urdu, yeah. and hopefully in other languages because this is a crisis. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and to, to finish up, um, 
you've done books, you've done workshops, you've done TV, uh, you never stop. One thing that a lot of people don't know about Deepak and they don't talk about is, he's a recording artist. You released an album which I heard 20 years ago to this day is one of my favorite, A Gift of Love, which featured Madonna, Lisa Bonet, Antonio Banderas. And it recited poems of Rumi. Would you do more of that? I'm actually planning to do another yes. one right as we speak. Might be recording some of it in Dubai. Amazing. Because there are some amazing uh, studios. I used to be a there. singer if you need anything. Okay. <laughs> no, it, I love it. And if anybody hasn't heard it, please listen to it. There's something just so mesmerizing about that album. Oh, and it's, it's a meditation, but music and oh it's beautiful it's beautiful so what is next for you do you does the spiritual journey ever stop or does it ever go on well you know in our tradition uh, where we come from you too yeah uh, the first 25 years of life is education yes second 25 is fame and fortune yeah. third is giving back so i've been there all these three <laughs> seven. The next is phase is waking up from a waking dream, uh, which is uh, what we call everyday reality is a waking dream in a vivid now. You know, Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, said our life is a dream. Yes. We are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. The Buddha said the same thing. Our life is a dream. He said, this lifetime of ours is transient as, as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings mm -hmm. is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down the steep mountain. So I'm looking at this dream right now. If I asked you what happened to your childhood, it's a dream, right? Mm. Well, what happened to yesterday? It's a dream. What happened to this morning? It's a dream. What happened five minutes ago? It's a dream. What happens to these words? By the time you hear them, they don't exist. The whole thing is a projection <laughs> of human consciousness. Now we give it names. Universe, body, mind, trees, stars, animals. This is a cosmic dream. We are part of uh, an infinite consciousness that is simultaneously having infinite dreams through what we call sentient beings that are instruments, also fictional characters, part of the collective dreamscape. So I'm trying to wake up. <laughs> so in this dream, I want to say thank you for coming into my dream and me into yours. And as they say, if there is another lifetime, hopefully we will meet again in that dream as well. I want to say thank you so much. Thank Deepak you, Bunim. Thank you. Poonam Verma, our producer in conversation with Deepak Chopra there. Mind-blowing conversation for your Tuesday afternoon. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.